Alright, so um, this week we are moving into the kind of third part of the course, if you like. So we started off looking at theory and how to do it, and then we looked at a whole bunch of um, theorists who have been very dominant in the social sciences. And now, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at people kind of speaking back to power, if you like. And so this week we're starting with um, post-colonial theory. Next week we're going to look at feminism or post-feminism. And then in the final week we're going to look at post-humanism. Um, so today's lecture is dense. I'm just going to just going to give you a bit of a heads up about that. Um, it's got six parts. So firstly, um, for those of you who have never studied it before, I'm going to give a bit of a background about colonialism and post-colonialism, just briefly. I'm sure you're all sort of generally familiar, but I think it's helpful to highlight a few things. Then secondly, um, as usual, I'm going to talk a bit about Fanon and give you a bit of um, context for him, so a bit of biography. Thirdly, we're going to talk, as we always do, about Fanon's central problem, which in this case is, of course, racism and colonialism. And then in the fourth part, I'm going to sort of unpick for you what I think is one interpretation of a Fanonian concept of power or theory of power. And then in the fifth part, which is when it's going to get really fun, I'm going to give you three different readings of Fanon that kind of throw light on different um, things you can get out of his theory. And then if we've got time, we'll, we'll talk relatively briefly, but we can definitely talk about this more in the seminar part, about Coulthard. So who read Fanon? All of you? Great. Who read Coulthard? Awesome. Who didn't read Coulthard? And, uh, okay. That's a crying shame because it is, I'm sure the rest of you can attest, it sheds a lot of light on Fanon. So um, you should read it. Eloise, you should definitely read yeah, it. Yeah, I will. <laughs> okay. I will. All right. So let's get started. Background. Colonialism and post-colonialism. Who studied these before at uni? Yeah, you should say yes. So anyone who's had me should be saying yes. Okay, so um, colonialism, uh, Bernstein um, defines it as the political control of peoples and territories by foreign states, whether accompanied by significant permanent settlement or not. So we have settler colonies like um, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada and the US. Um, and then there are a lot of other places that were settler colonies, like Kenya was a settler colony for a time, but is, is no longer a settler colony. Um, but colonialism is yeah, essentially defined by the political control of peoples and territories by foreign states. Um, when did European... So I'm just going to talk about European colonialism. Anyone know when that began? 1400, I think. Yep. Beginning or end? Beginning. And, yeah, 1492. Um, so that was when... Captain Cook? No. <laughs> Christopher Columbus. Captain Cook was like quite a bit later than that, <laughs> 400 years later than that. Um, so 300 years later than that. So uh, Columbus, um, quote unquote, discovered the Americas, conquered the Americas in 1492. And so throughout the 1500s, we had the expansion of Spanish and Portuguese empires through Latin America and the Caribbean, um, driven by, partly of course by greed, we know that they stole all of gold and minerals and so on, um, but also by a crisis of feudalism in 
Europe. So it's kind of important in general to understand that uh, what was happening in Europe is connected to what was happening in the colonies. So feudalism as a system was beginning to kind of unravel and so there were lots of people kind of at a loose end and they would go out on these kind of empirical, uh, sorry, empire um, expanding missions. Um, in the 1600s and 1700s there was more expansion of European power predominantly via merchants. So um, you, you will have all heard of the British East India Company for example or um, I did a little research about the Imperial British East Africa Company. So these were private companies that um, went out to the colonies to extract stuff. So the British East Africa Company wanted ivory, um, the British East India Company traded in cotton primarily but also later in things like tea. Um, and so it wasn't governments so much as um, private companies but they were always backed by government and in many cases they just folded right over into, a, uh, into government. So when the British East Africa Company went bankrupt, for example, the British government took over all of the things that they had committed to, like the railway and stuff. So, so a really close, um, it's a really, really close alliance is what I'm trying to say between the expansion of capitalism and expansion of empires. And this is important because Fanon is a Marxist, um, so this matters. In the 1800s and 1900s, there was more systematic state-based expansion of European powers. So this is when the merchants, like capitalism was largely established, um, even though it sort of was in fits and starts in a lot of places. And this is when governments began to like declare usually first protectorates and then colonies that they were officially part of the empire. Um, and then uh, decolonisation took place starting with India in 1943, 47, close. Um, and um, so India was first, and then I, uh, over many decades, some um, African colonies only became independent in the 80s. Um, so it, it, we sometimes think about the kind of the period of European empire as quite a long time ago, but it actually was really very, very recent. Um, and yeah, of course, um, today there's a lot of questions around whether or not we perhaps still have imperialism even though we no longer have colonies. So post-colonialism then, which is where, well, Fanon comes in as a kind of anti-colonial theorist, um, but post-colonialism, he's often studied in post-colonial schools of thought, um, it can mean a number of different things, so um, a bit like post-feminism in fact. So. A common way to define post-colonialism is that it's an indication of a particular time period after colonialism. But that's not really what post-colonialism is about because in fact post-colonialism is really kind of asking questions about whether or not we are in fact after colonialism or whether colonialism still persists. Um, post-colonial can also refer to a condition or a kind of set of social circumstances, economic, political circumstances, where the effects of colonialism remain prescient. Um, uh, I think it's Isabel Stengers, who's a post-colonial theorist, who talks about colonialism's hauntings. So this idea that like colonialism is still hanging around, even though it's meant to be... What's the name? Stengers, S-T-E-N-G-E-R-S. She's pretty, she's pretty full on, like it's pretty hard to read, but good. Um, and of course, post-colonialism is also a critical approach. And in academia, that's predominantly what we 
see it as. Uh, so it's a, a critical approach to understanding social, political and economic relationships and conditions. And I, I really want to kind of be clear here, I could have chosen so many different post-colonial thinkers to talk about power. Um, could have chosen Edward Said, many of you would have read Said, Orientalism, the Mille studies. Um, could have chosen, you know, Gayatri Spivak, could have chosen a bunch of different people. Um, and so I want to kind of emphasise that post-colonialism is not a single theory and it's not a kind of coherent framework. It's not incoherent, but it's not like, it's not especially fixed. It's a very diverse um, approach, if you like, rather than theory. Um, one uh, post-colonial theorist, Ashil Mbembe, so he, his M-B-E-M-B-E, -E, um, he wrote a book called On the Post-Colony. So he defines it, defines post-colonialism as follows. Um, so there's A, B, C, so three, three key points, and the last one has a number of subpoints. So firstly, post-colonial thought or criticism is driven by anti-colonial and anti-imperial struggles. Obviously, but also historically, it's largely being driven also by Western philosophy and Western scholarly traditions, like post-structuralism. So Said, for example, is Foucauldian, right? So, so there's a bit of a question there around. We'll get to that. Okay, secondly, he says um, post-colonial thought is fragmented. And he thinks that's both a strength and a weakness. So a strength insofar as something that's fragmented has a lot of options, which means it's got a lot of a lot of tools, if you like. Like if we think about theory like a toolbox, post-colonial thought has a lot of different tools in it. It can also be a weakness in the sense that there is no kind of unified agenda that everybody agrees on. And then the third point that she'll make is that despite that, there are some key tenets. So tenets in, in theoretical terms is T-E-N-E-T. It's not tenant as in renter. It's a different word. T-E-N-E-T. -E -T. It's one of the most commonly misspelt words in student essays. Okay, so A, B, C. So I'm going to give you four key tenets of postcolonial thought. Okay, don't start writing until I finish this next bit because it's long. The first is that it is a critique not of the West per se. So it's not like they just hate everything that's white and everything that's Western but of, quote, a certain conception, I'd call it colonial, of reason, of humanism and of universalism. So it's not a critique of everything that is Western because it's Western. It's a critique of a certain conception of reason, humanism and universalism. Could you read that again, sorry? Yep, reason, humanism and universalism. So reason, humanism and universalism, these are tools that we use a lot. You only need to think about, for example, human rights theory. Like you, you guys are all, I'm sure, advocates of human rights. You believe everyone has human rights, blah, blah, blah. 
But th those and many other tools that we think with um, rely on a, or they're kind of underpinned by a sense that everyone in the world is the same and if they're not, well, they should be and they will be. It, we've talked about this before when we've talked about modernisation and this idea that everyone is kind of on the same path. That's what post-colonial post thinkers are critical of. It's not the West. It's the West's assumption that the rest of the world is like the West. Okay, the second key tenant... Again, don't start writing it until I finish. So, um, post-colonial thought, I'm quoting here from Mbembe, stresses humanity in the making, the humanity that will emerge once the colonial figures of the inhuman and of racial difference have been swept away. I'll read that again. It stresses humanity in the making the humanity that will emerge once the colonial figures of the inhuman and of racial difference have been swept away. So it's... The humanity in the making thing, that's a reference to Deleuze about becoming rather than being. Don't worry too much about that. But um, what, what he's kind of saying here is that um, in colonial thought, like colonial thought was based on these hierarchies of civilised and uncivilised. And post-colonial thinkers assert that in fact like that binary doesn't make any sense and we are all humans in the making colonizer and colonized and once we get rid of these hierarchies that are anchored in race then we can start to see that so it's the, it's a bit like saying it's a bit like saying that they believe in universal humanism but the emphasis that Mbembe puts on humanity in the making is is to point out that we're all human, but we're not universal. Like we're not universally the same. And if we pay attention to like the particular things that we emerge as, then we can see that. So we can believe in a um, like a universal equality without the universal sameness. That makes sense. Okay. The fourth tenet is a critique of Western theories of the subject. And we've, this is something we've also talked about before. So before Foucault, the, we had this kind of idea of what we sometimes call the Cartesian subject, which comes from Descartes, who said, anyone? I think, therefore I am. We've all heard that before, I'm sure. That was Descartes. So we sometimes call this the Cartesian subject. The idea that there is a subject within us that is independent of our social relationships. Sometimes it gets likened to a soul or an essence. And remember when we talked about Foucault, we talked about throwing away that idea. Post-colonial thought is with Foucault on that. It's basically saying there is no kind of essential subject. Rather, our subjectivities are formed in the context in which we live. So post-colonial thinking stresses the fact that identity arises from multiplicity and dispersion. This is kind of Mbembe's language. So we don't have... It's not like there's a singular white subject or a singular black subject. It's more like we, are, we live lives in which we're exposed to all kinds of different things and, um, and we're constantly remaking and remaking ourselves. Um, 
He says the colonised person is a living, talking, conscious, active individual whose identity arises from a three-pronged movement of violation, erasure and self-writing. So a lot of um, post-colonial criticism sometimes falls into the trap of suggesting that colonialism was so nasty and horrible that colonised people's cultural identities and their racial identities have just been so violently destroyed that there's nothing left. And that's actually not what, that's not what good post-colonial thinkers say. They talk about violence and erasure of cultures and of different kind of identities and um, different forms of subjectivity, but they also talk about self-rewriting. So there's also, there's an emphasis, there's more of an emphasis on agency than in Foucault. So we talked about how Foucault allows for agency, but it's not really where he places his emphasis. Post-colonial thinkers place their emphasis on the agency. that colonised peoples are not mere victims. Okay. And then the last key tenet, the fourth one of post-colonial thought, is that um, it is enrolled in the historic social struggles of colonised societies. So it's about praxis, not just theory. Praxis is a word that kind of refers to the combination of practice and theory. You theorise and think and then you let that inform your practice and then you reflect on your practice and do more theorising and so on and so on. It's iterative. So it's, post-colonial thought is, po- is political, is the point that he's making. It's political. People, it's meant to be used to liberate people who suffer the effects of colonialism past and ongoing forms of colonialism. Okay, so I'll just recap those four key tenets. So the first one is that it's a critique not of the West per se, but of universalist humanist ideals of reason. Secondly, that it emphasises humanity in the making and a humanity that will emerge once colonial injustices and hierarchies have been gotten away with. The third is that um, colonised people have agency and their subjectivities form from their social conditions but they are responding to those social conditions. They're not just merely, purely being constructed by them. And then fourthly, it's political. It's meant to be used. Okay, so um, there are at least kind of three different schools, three main ones. So the first ones were the anti-colonial thinkers. And so these were people who were writing before decolonisation. So we can't really call them properly post-colonial because the colonies were not post then. So this would be people like Albert Memmi, who wrote this fantastic book called The Coloniser and the Colonised and shows how um, dehumanisation takes place for both. It's not like colonisation is not just dehumanising for people who are colonised. It also dehumanises the coloniser. many other authors. Many of these were from Africa. Many of the best anti-colonial literature came out of Africa. Um, and then there were also people from the Caribbean and the Antilles like Amos Cesaire, who um, Fanon refers to and I'll talk about, and Fanon himself. Then there's the Subaltern Studies School. This is the second kind of major school. Um, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, Homi Baba. These were mostly post-structuralists, so more or less Foucauldian. 
and a lot of them were based in literary criticism. A lot of them wrote about literature rather than politics per se, but of course they were writing about the politics that is embedded in literature. And then there's a third school which is a bit more recent, the decolonial school. I really like this stuff, so people like Walter Mignolo, Dussel, Kahano, Ndolovo Gatsheni, I can spell any of these two if you want to follow them up. Um, Yep, so Mignolo, um, M-I-G-N-O-L-O. Dussel is D-U-S-S-E-L. Kahano is probably the best place to start. Um, Q, I think I sent you that, Joe. I might have, I'm not sure. So it's Q-U-I-J-A-N-O. And then Undelovo um, Gatsheni writes about, so they're, they're all writing about Latin America. Um, and Undelovo Gatsheni writes about Africa, so N-D-L-O-V-U hyphen G-A-T-S-H-E-N-I. I might go hang out with him in South Africa on my next sabbatical, actually. He came and did the keynote at a conference that I organised a few years ago. It's cool. So um, the decolonial school thought is mainly came out of Latin America, but it's got a growing following in South Africa in particular. Um, and it is much more political, so it's much more about... Um, they talk about things like development rather than just focusing on literary criticism. Um, it's more radical, and they basically subscribe to this view that modernity and coloniality are two sides of the same coin. You can't have modernity without coloniality. And we can get into that. Like, There's quite compelling reasons why I think that's true. Um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that post-colonialism, you have to treat it as plural. A bit like the way there's no single feminism. We talk about feminisms. Post-colonialism is like that too, as a school of thought. And the reason why I chose to focus on Fanon is partly because I'm doing research on recognition, um, but also because Fanon is really having a moment um, over the last five years or so, in particular since Coulthard wrote Red Skin, White Masks. And so there's a lot of really new and exciting scholarship emerging around Fanon, and so he's a good person for you to know about. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's exciting. Um, Okay, so let's move on to Fanon, second part of the lecture. Any questions about postcolonialism? Can you say the name of the last subject? Decolonial. Yeah. Start with Kahano, 2007. Okay, so Franz Fanon, where was he born? You said earlier, it's in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. What's the country called? That's the region. <laughs> it does start with M. Martinique. Martinique in the Caribbean, southeast of Cuba. He was born in 1925 to a middle-class family. His father was descended from slaves, as were many people in the Caribbean. Um, and his mother was um, half-black um, and the other half kind of Martini Martinetian. Um, he studied at the best school in Martinique, so he's, you know, he's not like your average um, Martinican. And he studied in, uh, under Amos Césaire. So Césaire is C-E-S-A-I-R-E. -E. And Césaire was born in 1913 and died in 2008. 
and Césaire was is a very important figure for Fanon. So he was a poet, and um, you read some of his poetry in the chapter on. Do you remember reading poems in that? Yeah. So a lot of that was by Césaire. Um, he was he was an author. He was a politician, a successful leftist politician, Marxist politician, and he was one of the founders of Negritude. I'm going to talk more about so N-E-G-R-I-T-U-D-E um, so he was a very a very important political figure in Martinique but also a very important figure in the um, transnational movement of negritude which is about valuing black identity so um, after France fell to the Nazis in 1940 the Vichy French so the, those who were occupied this is all getting a bit complicated but I'll, I'll get to the point those who were associated with the unoccupied part of France, um, they were blockaded in Martinique. So some of them were in Martinique. So they're, they're anti-Nazi French, and the Nazis had them blockaded, like so they weren't able to leave Martinique. Um, and Fanon says that during that time, so, so they um, basically they couldn't go anywhere. So they came, you know, they were on land, and they were kind of intermingling with people, um, white French people, and. Fanon says they took off their masks to behave like authentic racists. And this was a really formative experience for Fanon. So he's living in a population that's mostly black, or has like large populations of um, slave-descended black people. And then all of a sudden there's this influx of white French people who are on the right side of World War II, but on the wrong side of racism. And that was a really formative experience for him. So when you read his text and he talks about his experiences, this was really key. He moved to France not long after that. So France is really the metropole of Martinique. France was um, had colonised Martinique. Um, and he was, he was aged 18 and he immediately went into the army there. He served in the French Free Army, so the you know anti-Nazi part of the French military in World War II. Um, and during that time, he went to North Africa. He served in North Africa. So the French had colonies in North Africa, Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. Um, and he also experienced racism there. So things like, you can imagine how shit this must feel. Like you're fighting for these people who colonised you. And um, he had experiences, for example, where photographers came to take pictures of the soldiers and they moved the black soldiers out of the way so they would be excluded from the picture, like journalists, so that when French people were reading about what their troops were doing abroad, they're only seeing white soldiers. So these are the kinds of experiences that he's having. In 1945, at the end of the war, he returned to Martinique and he worked for Césaire's parliamentary campaign there, so he became involved in politics. Um, and he also did his baccalaureate, like his undergrad, um, and then he returned to France after that to study medicine and psychiatry in Lyon and he completed that in 1951, age 26. So what are you guys doing with your lives? <laughs> <laughs> joking, joking, joking. Of course I'm joking. Um, so he, um, <laughs> he practiced psychiatry in France after that and in 1952 he published Black Skin, White Masks, which is what you read. It was originally his PhD thesis, uh, but it was rejected. Oh. So he, he didn't have his doctorate. Um, in 1953, a year later, he was appointed to run the psychiatry department at Blida-Joinville Hospital in Algeria, 
So Algeria is still a French colony at this stage in North Africa. Um, and he treated there in the psychiatry department both victims and perpetrators of torture. And this is really key if you read Wretched of the Earth. Um, so most of his experience prior to Black Skin White Masks was um, in Martinique and in France. And then he had that sort of brief period where he was with the army in North Africa. But his later work was very much informed by this work in Algeria. In um, 1956, so three years later, he resi- uh, oh, sorry, so while he was working at the hospital, he joined the FLN, um, the Algerian National Liberation Front, and contributed to its underground newspaper. And there is a film showing this Wednesday at Melbourne Cinematheque. If any of you go to that, probably maybe not. Um, it's at Acme at 7pm. You have to get there at 6.30. It's called The Battle of Algiers. I highly, highly recommend it. It's very, if you're writing on Fanon, I mean, none of you guys are, but some of you who are listening will be, if you can get to Acme on Wednesday night to see the Battle of Algiers, I highly recommend it. Um, so the FLN was one of the world's most successful liberation fronts. Um, so he joined that and contributed in an underground way while he was working with, at the psychiatry department of this French-run hospital. And then in 1956, he resigned because he felt he could no longer support the French colonisers. In 1957, he was expelled from Algeria by the French authorities and he moved to Tunisia where he practiced psychiatry and continued to work for the FLN. In 1961, the Algerian provincial government appointed him ambassador to Ghana, but he died of leukemia that year, aged 36. That's my age, so what am I doing with my life? Um, and he published Wretched of the Earth shortly before he died. What's Wretched of the Earth about? Have you read it, Joe? What's it about? <coughs> Language. Yeah. No, no, this one. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very similar. It's okay. involved. It's just basically How long after was it? So, Black Skin White Mask was published in 1952, and Wretched was published. In 1960. It's all about like. It was published in 1968, but uh, well, the English translation yeah. I think was published in 1960. So it's like he's like 20. Well, it was yeah, early 30s. Kind of experience. Um, Wretched of the Earth advocates violence as a means to overthrow colonial of powers. It's a very controversial book. We talked about it before. Arendt was writing partly in response to Wretched. Okay. Yeah, you know we talked about how she was. Um, she didn't see the reason why everyone was getting so hot under the collar about how violence was such a good thing. Partly she's responding to Fanon's book, which had been published in English not long before. On Violence was published in 1970. It's interesting, don't you think, to see these as all being in conversation with each yeah. other? Mm. Okay, so quite a fascinating life. Um, and I think, yeah, very important to understand where he's coming from. So let's get on to the third part of the lecture, his key problem is obviously his experiences of colonialism and racism. In Martinique, in France, in Algeria. And he was really, under, uh, he was really concerned to try to understand the relationship between colonialism, racism and freedom. And I've said this before, whenever we're talking about freedom, we're also talking about power and vice versa. 
So he really wanted to understand what, what was required in order for colonised black people to be free. Um, hands up if you found it uh, pretty hard to read. Yeah, it's pretty different from other stuff that we've read. His writing is pretty hard going. And I think in order to make sense of it, so I, I've read that, that chapter that you read maybe five or six times now and it just gets richer and richer every time I read it. Um, partly, I think you need to understand that Fanon, I think, you know, more than almost any of the other theorists that we've studied, he is wrestling with the complexity and the tensions. He's not, you know, I sometimes tell you not to wrap things up in a bow, don't resolve it, just open it up. He does that. He does that so well. And so he is like often oscillating between one position and another because both positions have value. So, so to be able to read him, you kind of need to accept that, that he's not, there's no clear position. He's not, he's not outlining like a single position in his work, like Arendt. Arendt is so firm about what she is and isn't saying. He's, he's the opposite. But I think he's much richer as a result of that. Okay, so for example, he talks about the inferiority complex, right? You would have picked that up in the text, how pe black people come to perceive themselves to be inferior. And he, he talks about how this is one of the most profound, pervasive and insidious effects of power. Um, but the milieu in which this is developed can't be escaped or undone. So he's basically like, this, we know this is a problem, that people are inferior, internalising this sense of inferiority, but it, the racialised hierarchy is so deep, it runs so deep, how, like, how, how are we supposed to overcome that without just reproducing it? So on the one hand, he's asking questions like, should there be a return to or a celebration of something like a black essence? Did you pick that up in the, in the text? And... Um, is there even such a thing as a black essence? Um, or is that, even a, is that itself just also a product of colonialism? Like a, a, a racial identities themselves a product of colonialism. On the other hand, they're faced with this really difficult task that politically, if they're to achieve anything, partly what they need to do is position themselves as matching white people, being as intelligent as accomplished, having as many historical achievements, having as rich a culture. But then that's kind of appealing to a universalism and he's not interested in universalism. So um, there are really, really tricky questions that, like he, he, he wraps them up a little bit in the conclusion to Black Skin White Mask, but in the chapter on the lived experience of blackness, it's wide open, he leaves it wide open. And I think if you go back and read it again with that in mind, you'll get, you'll get even more out of it. Okay, so fourth part of the lecture, what is his approach to power? So, before I get into that, can you all get the text out? Okay, so on the first page of the chapter, chapter 5, 
It starts with dirty nigger or simply look a negro. You've got that part, first line? Okay, on page 91, again, towards the bottom, he returns again, look a negro. It was a passing scene. I attempted to smile. Look, a Negro, absolutely. I was beginning to enjoy myself. You've got that? 91, did you say? Yeah. Okay, on page 93, in the middle of the page, look, a Negro, Mama, a Negro. Shh, you'll make him angry. Don't pay attention to him, Monsieur. He doesn't realise you're just as civilised as we are. You've got that? Halfway down the page? Okay. Okay. But you've got the general, you're picking up the point I'm trying to make here. Okay, so one way also to help you read Fanon is to see that he's not writing in a linear way. Everyone else we read in academia pretty much always writes from beginning to end and I encourage you to structure your essays in a logical <laughs> order from beginning to end and please, unless you can write like Fanon, please do that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I read this article by um, Wilder says, actually, if you think about the structure in a different way, think about it as a central point with tentacles coming off in different directions. And so the central point that he opens with is that comment, look, a Negro. Mm. And then he comes back to it again and again and spins off in another direction and again and he spins off in a different direction. So when you go back and read it again and you look at it, you can see that... It's not, I would not call this a very clearly structured piece of writing. There's no, like it's very hard to separate out sections. But if you think about it like as the central point is this lived experience of someone saying on the street, look a Negro, and then it's a series of reflections that spin off from that, then it becomes a bit easier to, to read. Mm. Another helpful thing um, with this, I think, is to think about partly what he's doing here structurally and in terms of form is reflecting the way the psyche works. So think for a minute, you know when we do those, you know when we do our five minutes meditation at the start of class, I don't know if you are able to sit back and observe your thoughts. If they're anything like mine, they probably go something like this. I'm so tired, my head hurts so much, I hope I can get through this lecture. I need water. What am I going to have for dinner? I've got to remember to bring chocolate to these people I'm having dinner with tonight. Um, I must remember to tell them that thing I was thinking about Quiltard. And it's like a series of like random things. That's how our minds work and that's how, he, that's how the chapter works. So partly he's a psychologist, right? He's trying to do something experimental here with form and he's, he's kind of going like these... Partly it's also a critique of reason, which is a point that I'll get to, but, but what he's trying to do is say that this is... In form as well as substance, he's showing the effects of racism. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay, so, um, yeah, and so in this he doesn't, of course, he doesn't talk about, he doesn't even use the word, I don't think he even uses the word power at all. In any event, he doesn't use it very kind of clearly or centrally. So we need to kind of draw out the theory of power from within it, and, and Coulthard is quite helpful for doing that. Coulthard describes Fanon as having a dual-structured conception of power. So it works, power works on the individual psyche and at the social level. 
that's what he means by dual structure. Um, so, for example, in, the in, in Fanon's introduction to his own book, um, he says, the inferiority complex can be ascribed to a double process. First, economic. Then, internalisation, or rather epidermalisation of this inferiority. Epidermalisation meaning what? Disease spreads an epidemic. Yeah. What's your epidermis? Uh, skin. He's talking about the embedding of it in your skin because the, the race is a phenotypical thing. So, um, so yeah, there's these two levels and, and that's really key. Even though in Black Skin, White Mask he's mainly talking about and in the chapter that I asked you to read, he's mainly talking about the psyche. It is really important to understand that Fanon was a Marxist, and particularly in Wretched of the Earth, but also partly in Black Skin, White Marks. He does also talk about, he's, he's interested in the way in which um, the material conditions of class exploitation are racialized through colonization. He also calls it, you know, he uses different terms, a massive psycho-existential complex. So he's, he's, you can't misconstrue Fanon as only talking about the mind or as suggesting that black people are psychologically pathological. That's not what he's suggesting. Everyone clear on that? Okay. So this internalisation of inferiority. So he talks about the derogatory, insulting and demeaning messages that are transmitted to black people in their daily experiences all the time. His approach is phenomenological. You know what phenomenology is? It's a branch of philosophy that's concerned with your experience. Phenomena as experience in your five senses, so what you see, what you feel, etc. And um, it's pretty visceral in here. So at the bottom of page 105 for me, um, does that chapter start on? The chapter starts for me on page 89. I've got an 82, so we've got 78. Okay. So 105, so 98 for you. You could almost pick any page, really, to make this point. He says, it's after the poem that says, Our hearts once burned hot. You can find that poem. In the next paragraph, he, he says, Are these nymphomaniacs virgins, black magic, primitive mentality, animism and animal eroticism? All this surges towards me. All this typifies people who have not kept pace with the evolution of humanity. Or, if you prefer, they constitute third-rate humanity. And so... Um, this is completely consistent with, you know, there were lots of studies at the time um, about like measuring um, skulls of black people and trying to make um, pseudoscientific arguments that their brains were smaller, etc. So, th I mean, you could open almost any page of this book and you can see it's visceral, that the kind of denigration and um, insult. And so the process is, of course, that these start to sink in and the black person starts to resent hate or feel ashamed of his or her blackness and want to be white.
I'll just read you out a couple of others because I think it's really crucial. I sit down next to the fire and discover my livery for the first time. Livery meaning like clothing or like what, what I'm in, um, wrapped in. It is in fact ugly. I won't go on because who can tell me what beauty is? Um, there's another passage where it talks about the feeling of, of like the feeling of feeling small in the face of all these insults. I slip into corners, my long antenna encountering the various axioms on the surface of things. The Negro's clothes smell of Negro. The Negro has white teeth. The Negro has big feet. The Negro has a broad chest. I slip into corners. I keep silent. All I want is to be anonymous, to be forgotten. Look, I'll agree to everything on condition that I go unnoticed. So you can imagine going around the world, like getting about your daily life feeling like that. It's not good. Um, okay, so then his question is, if this is what is happening, if social circumstances are such that um, black people are internalising this sense of inferiority, they want to be invisible or they want to be white, but whatever it is, they do not want to be black. Then his question is, then, well, what is the solution to that? And he turns to negritude um, as the solution. So negritude um, was a kind of intellectual and political movement um, that began in France in the late 1930s. So right around the time that he was growing up. And his, you know, his teacher and his mentor, Amos Césaire, was one of the key figures in the Negritude movement. Leopold Senghor, who later became president of Senegal, was um, another kind of key figure. And these were basically black people from different French colonies who all met in Paris. So they met when they were studying psychiatry or, or whatever. So um, it's kind of interesting that like the metropole gave birth to its own demise in that in that way. It was through their kind of mingling in Paris that they came to um, form this view um, and develop kind of intellectual and political tools to um, get rid of colonialism. So to put it simply, which Coulthard does, Coulthard is a very clear writer. So if you're interested in this stuff and you haven't read Coulthard, I really recommend you do. It's basically negritude is the idea that there is a particular identity associated with blackness which is in itself something that we can talk about and question, um, and that that identity needs to be affirmed in order to purge the damaging effects of colonialism and racism on black individuals and groups. So it's individual and collective. Do you want me to read that again? So it's the idea that there is a particular identity associated with blackness. That identity needs to be affirmed in order to purge the damaging effects of colonialism and racism on both individuals and groups. Okay, and we can see this also in this chapter. So in various parts. Sometimes in one paragraph he oscillates between this like in this inferiority and this denigration and the insult and and a negritude like an attitude of negritude which is about affirming blackness. So on my page um, 
102, so that would be your page 98, 90, 97. There's basically a section where he, he quotes Senghor on rhythm. Anyone got it? It's an excerpt in the form of a paragraph. Closer to the poems, like I have no rhythms. It's about a paragraph long and it's not in the form of prose. It's about four pages earlier than that river's. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, 93. 93. Okay, 93 of your edition. So there's a section on rhythm, listen to Senghor. It is the most sensory and least material of things. It is the vital element par excellence. It is the essential condition and the hallmark of art. As breathing is to life, breathing that accelerates or slows, becomes regular or spasmodic according to the tension of the individual and the degree and nature of his emotion. Such is rhythm primordial in its purity. Such it is in the masterpieces of Negro art, especially sculpture. The composition of a theme of sculptural form in opposition to a sister theme, like breathing in to breathing out, is repeated over and over again. Rhythm is not symmetry that produces monotony, but is alive and free. That is how the tyranny of rhythm affects what is least intellectual in us, allowing us to penetrate the spirituality of the object, and that lack of constraint which is, our, which is ours is itself rhythmic. And that lack of constraint which is ours is itself rhythmic. So what he's saying there, what Senghor is saying, is that Africans have innate rhythms and that it is um, beautiful and it is not um, intellectual. It's more primordial. It's more pure. And it imbues all of their art, including their sculpture. Obviously a controversial argument. Um, but that was kind of typical of, of a particular kind of expression of negritude. And then over the next um, about 10 pages, he goes and um, he quotes a number of poets. And th the reason why he's using poetry there is both as means and end to his argument. So partly he's trying to say the form of poetry deserves our attention. It's not just like academic writing that we should be paying attention to. Um, and also, look what good poets we are as black people. Um, there's another section, well after this same section, like in the next paragraph after that, he says, I had rationalised the world and the world had rejected me in the name of colour prejudice. Since there was no way we could agree on the basis of reason, I resorted to irrationality. And what he's saying there is not that he's irrational as in like lacking in rationality, but he's saying there is more to life than rationality and reason. There is also art and beauty and we're really good at it, is what kind of negative movement is really about. Um, he also talks um, about six pages later about excavating black antiquity. He says, what I discovered left me speechless. Um, in his book on the abolition of slavery, Schulter, I don't know how to pronounce that, presented us with some compelling arguments. Since then, Frobenius, Westerman and Delafosse, all white men, have voiced their agreement. Segu, Jene, cities with over 100,000 inhabitants, 
accounts of learned black men, doctors of theology who travelled to Mecca to discuss the Quran. Once this had been dug up, displayed and exposed to the elements, it allowed me to regain a valid historic category. The white man was wrong. I was not a primitive or a subhuman. I belonged to a race that had already been working silver and gold 2,000 years ago. Very yeah. 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 So what he's saying is like black people have done stuff and um, I don't know if any of you have heard of Timbuktu, mm-hmm. the actual place in Mali. Um, it's home to um, some of the, the world's oldest like institutes of learning, of written learning and there are all these amazing scrolls and things there. And, and he's basically saying it's not only Europeans. Ancient Greece was not the beginning of civilization. Mm-hmm. Black people have done stuff too, is what he's saying. So, so there's a lot of appeal in this, right? Like you can see how this would be a possible remedy to the internalization of inferiority. And then if we want to talk about power and counterpower, negritude is maybe a possible source of counterpower. Um, but I also want to kind of complicate that idea because Fanon himself complicates it. And so this is where I'm going to give you these three different readings. Are you all with me so far? Okay. So these are not linear. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not especially mutually compatible sometimes either. Um, they're really, you know, again, we come, come back again and again to this idea that we're interested in theory for what it helps us do differently. And each of these different readings offers something different. Okay, so the first is um, Coulthard, Glenn Coulthard on Marx, Fanon and Nevertude. Okay. The second one is going to be Jean-Paul Sartre and Coulthard and then the third one will be Wilder. So just to give you a sense of where this is going. Wilder is another author. Okay, so Coulthard argues that Fanon was both critical of negritude and an advocate of it. And he thinks that this is key to understanding black skin, white masks and Fanon's work as a whole. He actually argues that Fanon became a bit more sophisticated in his approach to this later on, but I'm just going to give you a slightly reduced version of that argument. You've already read it. so Okay, so on, in Red Skin, White Mask on page 132, Coulthard outlines these three points on which Fanon was critical of negritude. The first one was that he was critical of its essentialist and bourgeois nature. What do I mean by essentialism in this context? Wasn't it really basic? So like there are white people and there's black people and all black people have the same idea and the same thought yep. and they all have the same values. Mm-hmm. But then he's arguing, well, no, because, yeah, you know, there's not just one black man, there's yeah. many. Yes, that's exactly right. So essentialism is basically an idea that in this context that a particular group of people all share a set of characteristics, in this case on the basis of their skin colour. For example, they all have rhythm. We've heard this before, like this is still a thing that floats around. Black people have rhythm, white people can't dance. Like these are not, you know, these are not abstract ideas, like they, you know, they're still very much around today. And he Though he, he wanted to kind of celebrate the rhythm that is present in the history of like African art, 
he doesn't want to essentialize the idea that all Africans have rhythm, and yeah, but that he says there are more. There is not one black man. There are many black men. He's a terrible misogynist, so he doesn't make very decent um, mention of women. <laughs> okay, so that's his first point, and also that it's very bougie, very bourgeois. It's all about art, and you know, not very connected to the lived experience of a plantation worker, for example. Okay, so his second point, Coulthard says Fanon was um, also critical of negritude. Um, I've disorganised my thoughts, hold on. Page 132. If you've got it um, in front of you, jump into it. The Coulthard text. Page 142. Okay, I've confused this a little bit, but we're covering many points. So his first criticism is that he's um, Fanon's critical of the essentialist um, nature of some work in negritude. The second is that empirically, he says there there are many black men but also that this logic could potentially, the logic of there being like a single form of negritude could potentially undermine the emancipatory potential of negritude because it is so based in this idea of um, this kind of almost, there's an almost a primordialism to it. Like the emphasis on sensuality, for example, buys right into stereotypes about um, black people being oversexed, which were really prevalent during the colonial period and um, there were all kinds of horrible um, policies put in place in colonies to stop black people because they're just so rampantly sexual. So he, he sort of was like, well, this not only is it not true, but it's also like it buys into some things that we don't really want to be buying into that could work against us. And thirdly, his, his criticism is that it's elitist and it doesn't have a very close connection to the lived experience of most black people at the time, which was people who worked on plantations or lived in rural parts of Africa, etc., not people who were studying psychiatry in Paris. Okay, but Coulthard says, nonetheless, Fanon saw potential in the idea of individual and collective self-recognition and affirmation as part of the struggle. So, and you can see that in, in Black Feed White Mars in the passages we read out. He's worried about it, but he also sees potential in it. And then Coulthard makes what I think is a very persuasive argument that this potential for Fanon, like whether or not negritude is going to actually help in an anti-colonial struggle or whether or not it might end up being unwittingly used against black people, depends on connecting this subjective struggle to a material one. What do you think I might mean by that? Material struggle. Who is a materialist of the theorists that we've studied? Already studied. Marx. Marx. That's what he means by a material struggle. A struggle against capitalist, the capitalist mode of production and exploitation. So it started when, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Capitalism. Mm-hmm. All the more reason to undermine it. So, um, 
it's not just about subjective affirmation of a black past, it's also about a struggle against the material conditions of the colonial present. So in other words, Fanon, according to Coulthard, understood colonial power to operate through both the formation of certain kinds of subjects who saw themselves as inferior and were unlikely to stand up because of that, and the establishment of material relations between races that were kind of um, articulated to the formation of class. So race and class were kind of formed hand in hand. They were both mediated by each other. So interpersonal racism is mediated by experiences of exploitation and vice versa. They fuel each other. And so Fanon and Coulthard both think that an anti-capitalist restructuring of society is essential to eliminate the conditions that lead to the need for self-affirmation. And there's a bit of a chicken and an egg question there, right? Which one comes first? If people are able to affirm their identities and shore up their sense of self, perhaps they might be better equipped to engage in a class struggle. If they weren't so exploited, perhaps they would be better equipped to be able to affirm themselves and their identity. And we can get into the complexities. Or there are debates about which one comes first. Okay. All right, the second reading is about means and ends, and this is Coulthard and Sartre. So who, who's Sartre? S-A-R-T-R-E. Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul. He wrote the foreword in Rachel He did write the foreword in Rachel Yeah. Well, so I talk about this in, that's in my master's, the Jew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Does anyone know who he was? French yeah. philosopher. No, he was a politician. No, philosopher. French philosopher. Oh, no, he wasn't French. He moved to France, did he? He was, I'm pretty sure he was French. He had a funny He was married for a while to Simone de Beauvoir. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's Simone de Beauvoir? Um, she's quite a famous feminist. Yeah. Um, it was called like, The Second Sex. The Second Sex. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so... Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist philosopher, married to Simone de Beauvoir, an existentialist philosopher feminist. Mm. You should all read The Second Sex. It should be mandatory reading. And um, The Second Sex is basically this idea. It's not actually dissimilar from Black Skin, White Mask, about how women are um, structurally and kind of intersubjectively, they form the basis against which men are able to know themselves and women's um, oppression is essential to men's sense of identity as it is. You should read it. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, he hung out also with Albert Camus, who some of you might know wrote The Outsider and The Plague. He was a novelist. Um, so basically there's this kind of like group of like pretty important um, existentialist philosophers who hung out together in Paris, and they all produced really important historical works. And I, I think this is also important. Hannah Arendt was in Paris, you know, around that same time. Do not hang out with them, though. <laughs> um, but it's quite interesting to like make these things concrete, you know. Um, and there were a lot of arguments between them. Camus and Sartre had a huge argument and never spoke again. And Fanon and Sartre also fell out 
for reasons that I'm about to explain. Um, so, okay, let me see if I can explain this clearly. So, arguably, both Fanon and Sartre shared the view that negritude and a particularist, well, that negritude was a means to an end, to put it simply. So basically, and, and Fanon is a bit, you know, there's a bit of a tension here because in that chapter, um, the lived experience of, of the lived experience of blackness, there's this very famous section in capital letters where he says, I made up my mind since it was impossible to rid myself of an innate complex to assert myself as a black man, black man in capital letters. Since the other was reluctant to recognise me, there was only one answer, to make myself known. This is a very famous passage in you know, kind of broader literature around recognition that I also work in. And so when you read that, you think, okay, well, Fanon's talking about how if I'm able as a black person to recognise myself, that is enough. That is the end goal. But then later in the conclusion, which you also read, he actually makes quite a different argument. And he starts to say what we're ultimately aiming for is a post-racial existence. Post-racial meaning, you know people sometimes say I don't see colour, meaning they actually don't see it, which is impossible today, like that's a ridiculous thing to say today. But what Fanon kind of casts to in the end is this kind of period where that's, that's what life is like for black and white people. What did you call it? Post-racial after race, where race no longer exists. But that is in quite a lot of tension with what he's saying in this chapter about the importance of blackness. And so arguably they both basically see negritude and the affirmation of blackness as a stage. But they think that for different reasons. So. For Sartre, Sartre was a Marxist, they were all Marxists, all the French are Marxists. Um, Negritude was a dialectical move from the particularity of identity to the universalism of class struggle. Can you put that again? No. Of course I can. For Sartre, Negritude was the dialectical move. Okay, so let's unpack that. Where have we come across dialectics before? Language. Yep. Sounds a bit like that, but it actually means something utterly different. So, dialectics is Hegel, and Hegel influenced Marx. So, Hegel was a German idealist, if you remember, and he didn't. Marx was a materialist, so he didn't agree with the idealist idea that there's no things, there's only a perception of things. But he did agree with Hegel's view of history as progress. Do you remember that? Is that ringing some bells? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Hegel's idea of history as progress is hinged on this idea of dialectics, that social existence or life, the world, is a series of oppositions that come into conflict with each other and resolve. And then the resolved thing comes into contact with another thing and it resolves. And thus we have the unfolding of history in an ever more progressive direction. That's dialectics. That's dialectics. 
Sartre was on board with dialectics because he was a Marxist and he believed that negritude was one of those stages but so at the moment he was on board with negritude he's like yes we do need to have this affirmation of blackness because it needs to come into opposition with racism and then by those two colliding in a dialectical way we will have this kind of like unfolding in a more positive direction but then identity politics of any kind LGBTQ, feminist, black, whatever lots of people think this will then come into conflict with class and ultimately class will win out as the kind of primary antagonism or the primary thing to which, with which people identify and identity will fade away in that process and all we will have is class and then when we get that then we get revolution so that was what Sartre believed that negritude was important but it would ultimately give way to class identity would give way to class Identity struggles would give way to class struggles. Fanon was pretty pissed about that. So, in the lived experience of blackness on my page 111, No one did anything really useful like mark up where you came across that in the reading. Isn't that a few times? He is, but there's a section that says uh, when he starts to quote him, but there is something more serious. The Negro, as we said, creates an anti racist racism. It's a paragraph excerpt. Uh, line one. Oh, but Alice is a very different interpretation. Uh, mm. So when you read out the uh, paragraphs, it's very different. Okay. Mm. But the quotes are the same still. Oh, they're a little bit similar. Mm. Yeah, really yeah, okay. So is it, but there is something more important? Yeah. 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 Um, so on that section, that's where he says, Negritude passes, as Hegel would say, because Hegel was the dialect, you know, he came up with the idea of dialectic, into the objective, positive, exact notion of the proletariat. That's what that passage means. And just above that section, you can see Fanon's response to it. He says, When I tried to claim my negritude intellectually as a concept, they snatched it away from me. They proved to me that my reasoning was nothing but a phase in the dialectic. So... Oh, so like belittling it? Yeah, belittling it. Or saying it's important, but it's not the end goal. Yeah. And he's like, I just found this thing that was like possibly a solution to this problem of the internalisation of inferiority, and you're telling me it's nothing but a phase, mm. and that something more important is to come afterwards. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. Wait, is that sounding? Yeah. He says, well, for me on page one twelve, he says, you robbed me of my last chance. And then on page 113, he says, I did not create a meaning for myself. The meaning was already there, waiting. I mean, you already worked out the progress of history and I'm just this little footnote in it. You're not giving me any credit. 
me individually or, or in the collective sense for negritude and like what it is and what it could be and the difference that it could make. Does that make sense? Okay. So. Um, I have a question. Yep. I highlighted that, that negativity is the root of its own destruction. It's like in like clashing with other otherwise because he's saying that if you pursue it so much, it will then like implode on itself. Yeah. Yeah. It would. The dialectic will resolve in a way that um, dissolves negritude. Does that mean it becomes the problem fixes itself like a bit of time and then you move on? Mm-hmm. So negritude can't be sustained. That's what Sartre thought. Yeah. Well, not that it can't be sustained, it doesn't need to be sustained. He didn't think it needed to be sustained. So so the first step is for black workers to assert their blackness um, and then they're going to be able to kind of mobilise themselves towards the class struggle which is what really matters and we still see this today I don't know, you've probably correct me if I'm wrong, but you've probably never thought about it like this but in terms of the history of political thought over the last century this is one of the biggest debates whether the central antagonism or the central problem in social life is class or identity. Mm. And for a very long time it was class and Marxists were at the forefront of all social sciences and everyone believed that class was the big problem that we needed to address in, out in the world and in, at the national level and so on. And then a bunch of people, including women, black people and queer people in particular, came along and said, and then later on, Muslims in particular joined the fray and said, actually, identity matters. I'm more oppressed by my identity than I am by my class position. But are they kind of saying that, like, the blackness is seen as a class then? So so there's a a confluence between blackness and class in the sense that most black people are on the bad side of exploitation, not the good Mm -hmm. side. There's not a lot of black capitalists. It's mostly black workers. Mm. And Sartre agreed that they needed to affirm their blackness in order to develop some sense of like self and sense, some positive sense of self and self-security. But that that was a step on the path towards ultimately uniting with all the other workers of the world. Mm. And that once they were united with all the other workers of the world, they would see that their class position is actually what defines them, not their race. But would they not still feel their race when they're in, like, kind of, with other workers, white workers? So this is what Fanon is saying. Sartre is wrong about dismissing negritude. Mm. But Fanon also does seem to think that it's possible to arrive at a post-racial, in a post-racial world. Are you also with me? Yeah. Yeah. If you fix all identity issues, then you move on to class issues. But if you fix all class issues, can you move on to identity issues? Not for that. 
So just to repeat that question for people who are listening, Joe just asked, if you fix all identity issues, you can move on to class, but if you fix all class issues, can you then move on to identity? Saad didn't think so, and this is what Fanon was trying to grapple with. But identity is not be a class that you can use. Sometimes people like not to identify as the elitist. Yeah, so I'm using the term identity politics in the political theory sense of referring to uh, something other than class. Yeah. Of course, people can identify as, as class, but um, identity politics, it's, it's the debate between recognition and redistribution is another way of putting it. Identity, people who are advocating for identity politics want recognition. Queer people, for example, want to be recognised by being allowed to marry, which is a deeply capitalist institution. And um, a lot of people think that this turn to identity politics means we've lost class politics. And so that's why, that's why a lot of people are critical about queer movement wanting to, not a lot of people, some people are critical about the queer movement wanting same-sex marriage because marriage is a capitalist institution that's about getting mortgages and buying into the capitalist system. And that's not very radical, but because we're so distracted by this like identity equality stuff, we've lost sight of capitalism and exploitation. And actually people need to re-identify with their class position and forget about their position as women or as queer people or as Muslim people or black people or Latino people or Aboriginal people. So, sorry, if the class, if everyone identifies, identifies as a class, yeah. it will fix identity issues because capitalism... That's what Sartre thought. Okay. I yeah, it makes sense in a really abstract way. I don't know how much sense it makes in a concrete way. It's very community oriented. You got to drive yourself for the rest of the time. Yeah. Should we move on to the third reading? Okay. So just to reiterate, the, the key point of that was about means and ends and whether or not negritude is a is a means to a, uh, an end that is post-racial or an end that remains racialized, but where black people can affirm themselves. And I think we can debate whether, which, which position Simon ended up with. There are parts of the book where he definitely seems to affirm a post-racial utopia, and there are other parts where you know, it, it, it remains unclear how we would get there. So this brings me to the next reading. Okay, so this is the third reading. This is by Gary Wilder in a 2004 article called Race, Reason, Impasse. Cesare Fannin and the Legacy of Emancipation in Radical History Review. Did I say 2004 already? 2004. Okay. So Wilder, so he's studying Fannin and Cesare and Cesare's um, poem, like book-length poem, Return to My Native Land, which Fannin partly cites in the chapter that you read. And Wilder argues that both Césaire and Fanon have a problem in their work in that the body of their most famous texts, so for Césaire, his poem, and for Fanon, Black Skin, White Mass, is insightful and complex, but their conclusions are not. And this is why I asked you to read the conclusion so we could discuss this. So in that chapter, The Lived Experience of Blackness, it's so rich and complex and it leaves so much open and unresolved about these like tensions and contradictions and like his, his worries about negritude, being elitist, being bourgeois, being essentialist, possibly undermining the project. 
and his excitement about the potential that it offered, it's all wide open and like rich and alive in that chapter. And then in the end he's like, yes, but anyway, we're all just going to be post-racial. And so there does the same thing. And so Wilder's like, well, these are smart guys. What is going on? Like, why, why is it that there is this problem? And he says that they both arrive at an impasse, that they're ultimately unable to resolve the deep problems they identify. How long is the time you wrote this book again? You come the 20s? Yep. So basically they, they identify these really deep problems about the formation of black subjectivities and they can't resolve them. So in Black Skin, White Masks, Fanon just affirms the possibility of a universal humanism at the end of the book, even though he's gone a very long way in the rest of the book to convince us that that is impossible. given the inescapable place of race in structuring our subjectivity. So the whole book is about how race is at the heart of subject formation. And then he's like, but anyway, we'll just have, we'll just be universally, we'll all be universally the same human beings at the end of the day. It's very unsatisfying. Um, he says, Wilder says, Fanon follows Césaire by leaving his readers with an ungrounded vision of post-racial universalism that his own text is already rendered implausible. So if we look at the conclusion, there's so many passages that we could pick, but let's just start at the end. He says, I, a man of colour, want but one thing, May man never be instrumentalised. May the subjugation of man by man, that is to say, of me by another, cease. May I be allowed to discover and desire man wherever he may be. The black man is not, no more than the white man. Both have to move away from the inhuman voices of their respective ancestors so that a genuine communication can be born. He's basically saying, this is he's painting a picture of a time in which Blackness and whiteness don't make any difference to who you are and where you have to move away from the voices of your ancestors, which is everything that he was affirming when he was talking about excavating black antiquities and kind of affirming like histories of black achievement and accomplishment and beauty and art. He's saying to move away from the inhuman voices of your respective ancestors so that a genuine communication can be born. But he's already done so much to show that that is not possible. Mm. Um, Wilder argues that this is because the socio-political historical context of the mid-20th century was just hold tight with me here, okay? Why? No, no, I'm just it's, it's just gonna it's gonna get complex, okay? That con so this is like after World War Two, after like around the time of decolonisation was a context where emancipation or decolonisation generated the problem of freedom. With the shackles formally off, what possibilities are there and how are those possibilities still constrained? And that's kind of how Wilder structures this whole article. It's like people fought and fought and fought and they fought some more. Black people especially, because they weren't just colonised, they were also enslaved. And then, very, very, very suddenly, 
is they were made free. And there was a real question then of like, what is this supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean to be free? Um, and he said there are two incompatible positions in Fanon's work. One, this idea that subjectivity is inherently and inescapably shaped by race and the other that a universal humanism is possible. So which one of those? Am I to be free by being my truly black self, as he argues in chapter five, or am I to be free by being simply human? Which freedom is it that I'm supposed to have? And he says under, under conditions of emancipation there was still a double bind. So there's this old Republican racism and by that I mean republicanism as an ideal a bit like liberalism you could equally talk about liberalism this idea that we can have like a, a political community in which everyone is equal that's an ideal but actually that's actually quite a racist ideal because it, it assumes that everyone is starting from the same place and everyone is not starting from the same place it's guilty of the problems with like universalism and universal humanism and reason and all of these things that uh, Fanon has shown to be racist. And then on the other hand, there's this radical particularism. Particular meaning like the, the blackness. He says that the relationship between radical particularism and cosmic universalism is never worked through adequately. Does that make some sense? So all, Wilder argues that all the efforts that Cesare and Fanon made to find a way to establish an effective anti-racism that could transcend that tension between like affirming blackness and falling into the trap of universalism failed. For Cesare, he tried poetics and madness so like he tried to use this like alternative form as a way of like finding a way out of this impasse because you know when you write academically as you guys know like in essays and stuff you've got to sort of it's got to be logical it's all got to hang together and so partly what Cesare did by writing his primary work as a poem was to see if the form opened up possibilities for dealing with that tension um, but he said it, it's readily redeployed against him and it reproduces essentialised backwardness. This idea that Africans are not capable of reason or black people are not capable of reason. They have this sort of wild attachment to sens sensuality and, um, you know, kind of reproducing all the things that black people were accused of. Bannon tried a number of different things. So one option he tried, assimilation. And I'm going to go through four things that he tried that all failed. The first one is assimilation, to just accept dehumanisation. But obviously that's, that's a no-go. There are passages, like the passage I read out to you, I'm just trying to find it again, where he said he just wanted to, he just wanted to be invisible. That's kind of his like, okay, well maybe I'll just assimilate then. But for obvious reasons, that is not a good, a good way out. The second thing was an appeal to reason.
this idea that if you just reason it out, then you'll see that the black man is in fact human, right? And that makes sense to us, right? Like we all we all agree that black people are human. We don't have any problems with that. But um, repeatedly through this chapter that you read, um, Fanon shows the failure of reason and the way in which reason just came while this is it came too late in the sense that reason by the time Fanon's writing this book reason was already structured by European ways of thinking so when you say the black man he's smart too you're measuring that by European standards when you say he can produce good art as well you're measuring that by European standards when you say he's got a history of achievement, you measure that by European standards, can also process metals, can also write scripts, etc. So already all of the things that, um, or all of the appeals to reason, this is a really complex argument, but all of the appeals, you, you're following what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. All of the appeals to reason are already reproducing these Western forms of thinking that they're exactly trying to get away from. So reason doesn't work. And then option three is negritude and cultural nationalism. But we've already talked about the various problems with that. Maybe it's just stage, it has problems with essentialism, etc. It's got potential, but it doesn't quite resolve the problem. And anyway, it definitely doesn't rec uh, reconcile particularism and universalism because it itself is just purely particularist. And then there's the fourth option that Fanon tries, which is either rage or despair, basically nihilism. And he says this in the last, very last paragraph of chapter five. I tried to get up, but the eviscerated silence surged towards me with paralysed wings. Not responsible for my acts, because he's just an essentialised version of this, like a historical black figure. At the crossroads between nothingness and infinity, I began to weep. And that's how he chooses to finish the chapter, on a note of like utter despair. And there are other parts where, like, there's real rage, like you said. In the introduction, is that I should have written this for three years ago, but this truth of fire and now I can tell you that I've been burned. Say that again. This truth was fire in me then, but now I can tell you without being burned. Yeah. Now it's powerful. Yeah. Is that because you got to a stage where you just kind of accepted that it wasn't going to change? Are you still wrote book anyway? Yeah, maybe. I mean, um, for those of you who are listening online, the passage was about how he, in the introduction, he said, can, can you read it again? Um, I sh this book should have been written three years ago, but these truths were a fire in me then. Now I can tell them that I've been burned. Yeah. So he, he had to wait, you know, he'd known this for a while, but he had to wait until the pain of what he was saying wouldn't burn him anymore. Yeah, I suspect I it probably still did burn him. I was interested in what was three years ago, that it was a mm -hmm. hundred years since colonial, colonialism was, or slavery was illegal in colonised French countries. I looked up the history of right. French and it's on a Wikipedia and right. it's like, it's not quite, maybe there was like a delay in when it was published. Or it was yeah. 
And also no, translations no. come out at different mm. dates, but... No, introduction.